Welcome to the Data Dish podcast from the Illinois Science and Technology Coalition. My name is Matt Bragg. I am Director of Data and Policy here at ISTC. On this podcast, we'll be talking about all things innovation in science and technology in the state of Illinois. In this inaugural episode of the podcast, we sit down with Professor Edward Colgate from Northwestern University. Um, He is a professor in the McCormick School of uh, Engineering at Northwestern um, and is doing some really interesting research on robotics. Um, and then haptic displays, which are um, displays that give the user sort of a, a touch feel on the, uh, the digital display. So this is our conversation with Professor Colgate. So, uh, Professor Edward Colgate, uh, you are a professor of mechanical engineering at the McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern University. Um, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, I want to get into some of your research uh, interests. You're doing some really interesting things in sort of robotics, I understand, and, and um, sort of the human interaction between uh, uh, us humans and robots. Um, so maybe if we could start by um, just having you tell us about those research interests, and then we can kind of work backward from there into to how you develop those interests and, and sort of your, your path to where you are today. Sure, I'd be happy to tell you a bit about um, what I do and then, of course, to dig into how I got here, which is, like any any of these things, kind of a long and strange journey. But uh, for me, the uh, primary research interest I have is in this area known as haptic interface. The word haptic um, comes to us from the Greek. It's a term that was really first widely used in the um, uh, cognitive psychology uh, community to, to refer to the perceptual system associated with touch. So one of my favorite examples is reaching my hand in my pocket to pull out my key fob and knowing that it's my key fob and not a folded bill or some coins or something else and getting my hand on it and getting my thumb on the unlock button and not the panic button and, and then you know knowing that and then and pressing the button and knowing that I've done that. That is the haptic system at work, giving me uh, information uh, about the world through that sense of touch. It's sort of intermingled with manipulation, actually using your hands to do things. But when we use the word haptic, we're really talking more about the side of it having to do with getting information, understanding the world through touch. Um, That's primarily what I work on. What I work on is interfaces to the digital world that use haptics. Uh, And and so these take many different forms um, from essentially small robots that you can grab onto an interface to a 3D uh, simulation of the virtual world to the thing that I focus on a lot these days, which is what I call surface haptics, where you're bringing haptics to things like touchscreens and trackpads. Great. So maybe if you can talk a little bit um, uh, then about your career path and sort of how you got interested in that and then, you know, how you moved through the ranks and, and kind of the, the path that took you to where you are now. Sure, yeah. Um, happy to do that. Um, so I uh, recently celebrated my 30th year in the faculty at Northwestern. Wow. So congratulations. All- <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Um, uh, very exciting for me. Um, um, so I... Um, in some respects, I've had a fairly linear uh, uh, career. Um, I uh, did all of my degrees at MIT. I was a physics uh, student as an undergraduate and stayed for graduate school in mechanical engineering. And my interest was robotics. Uh, One of the really hot topics at the time, and of course this was over 30 years ago, 
was getting robots to interact physically with their environment. So if we looked at the time of what robots were good at doing, it was things like spray painting a car or maybe laying down a weld bead, but not things like putting two parts together or using a tool to do something energetic like drill or you know grind off a weld bead or something like that things that really involved energetic interaction with the world were tough um because robots aren't like us like we're very compliant um and very smart in how we use our limbs uh so uh, being able to um to like hold on to a tool and and and, and use it but but also like if you're imagining um grinding uh, a weld bead on a, on a path in space, you can just sort of follow that. Robots have trouble with that sort of thing, mm-hmm. even if you program precisely, if the programming doesn't line up perfectly with the world, with reality, then you kind of have the, you know, the um, unstoppable force and the immovable object coming together mm-hmm. and bad things happen. And, and that's kind of what was happening in robotics is, you know, bad things whenever we try to get a robot to interact with the world. Um, so this led me to <clears throat> work on that problem. I had had a lot of fun doing that um, uh, as a graduate student, and then I joined the faculty of Northwestern after that and uh, thought that I would kind of continue in that vein. Uh, but um, as happens a lot with uh, different fields, uh, they have their ups and downs, and, and robotics was kind of going through a bit of a retrenching at the time, and it was kind of tough to find uh, funding to, to do work in robotics. Um, um, and in part, this was really kind of a really wise course correction because we just didn't really have the level of computation um, uh, necessary to, to really make robots highly effective in, in most tasks. Um, you know, the sort of things that are happening in AI today are really exciting. Well, that just wasn't available at the time. Yeah. And, and so there was some interest in in using robotic devices but having a human in the loop because a person brings that smarts a person brings a lot of sensory capabilities we can look at a scene see what's happening understand that uh, and then make good decisions um, so one example of where you would have a person plus a robot would be in a what's called telemanipulation remote manipulation uh, uh, so this was originally developed actually here in the Chicago area at Argonne National Lab for uh, handling uh, radioactive materials. Um, so you want to be able to pick up a, a, a rod of nuclear fuel, but you just don't want to do that with your own hand. <laughs> We're close, right? And so um, a person would sit on one side of a, a wall with a bunch of lead in it, and they'd have you'd be connected to, um, to a robot on the other side. And so you'd have a master robot that you hold on to, and it's connected to a slave robot that mimics the motions. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, not only does it mimic your motions, but you feel what it feels. So if you're squeezing down on something, you feel that squeeze force. Um, and, and so that's always been a challenging thing to do, especially as, um, for instance, distances get greater. Think about... Um, uh, manipulation of robots that might be in orbit around the Earth or far under the water, um, uh, or as scales get different. Um, these days, um, um, many, many surgeries are performed with um, 
the Da Vinci robot from um, Intuitive Surgical, um, and it is a telemanipulation system in which a surgeon sits on one side of the room, um, and uh, his or her motions um, are um, scaled down um, and um, and delivered uh, to the uh, to, to the surgery site um, um, through very very small incisions and little tiny robot hands. So this is what I uh, initially set off to to work on. Um, and and it, it's a really interesting area, and a lot of great research has been done in that area. <laughs> For me, though, I was struggling to find enough funding even to do all of that work, and I built this master manipulator I could grab onto, but I didn't have enough money to build the slave. Um, and so uh, we decided, heck, we'll simulate it instead with a computer program. And so now I'm holding onto this device and hooking it up to a computer program of some environment to interact with. And lo and behold, that's that's a haptic interface. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't even know the word uh, haptic at the time. But, but this was one of the early haptic interfaces. And so that kind of changed the course of my career, um, uh, sort of stumbling into this new area. Wow, that's very cool stuff. Um, so it's going back 30 years now, but maybe you can talk a little bit about um, you know, coming from MIT and choosing Northwestern, you know, what drew you to Northwestern and I guess more broadly, you know, the Chicago area and the state of Illinois? Sure. Um, you know, opportunity, um, to be, to be quite frank, um, you know, academic, uh, positions are, um, are like jewels, uh, <laughs> defined even to this day, maybe even more so than they were then. Um, and in Northwestern, uh, you know, there was a, uh, a, a great institution with a great name, um, but one also that um, was clearly at the time in, in a, uh, a process of renewal. Um, um, I, I work in the Tech Institute, which is a huge building on Sheridan Road in Evanston. People who drive by will easily recognize it. Um, but in the late 80s, um, that building was uh, just about to undergo sort of massive renovation. And so there was a lot of resources being put into, uh, into engineering. And um, another young roboticist by the name of Michael Peshkin had joined the faculty just one year before myself. Uh, and uh, it felt like, um, for me, an opportunity to kind of get in on the ground floor of some, some renewal, some, some, some new things that would be happening. Um, um, and, and indeed, I had to weigh that against um, uh, offers to institutions that were um, kind of a little, a little more established in, in, um, um, in the robotics area at the time, but where I felt I might also be um, a, a little bit um, lost in the crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, uh, I have to say, I, I, I grew up in Florida. I went to school in Boston. I'm not a Midwesterner, and, and so there was a little intimidation um, of uh, being in this new part of the country, but uh, it did work out. It did work out really well, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I've been fortunate to be at Northwestern through a period of just uh, extraordinary growth and, and improvement along so many different metrics. It's been a very fun time to, to be there. So, Oh, that's great. Um, so maybe shifting gears a little bit. Um, so we came out with our reports called the Illinois Innovation Index, which came out last month. Um, this issue was on R&D, including university R&D. Um, and one of the things that we pointed to in the report was really how sort of university industry collaborations around research, those sort of partnerships, um, have really grown recently and are kind of providing a pathway for for research to continue to grow in Illinois. So I'm wondering, you know, some ways that you've collaborated uh, with industry, obviously, you know, in engineering, computer science, that's 
um, big areas for that. So maybe if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, your own uh, sort of partnerships with the industry that you've had, and then sort of more broadly, um, how those are kind of changing uh, university research. Yeah, those are those are great questions. Um, yeah, for myself, uh, for most of my career, I've been pretty closely tied to the commercial world, um, both in terms of uh, doing research with partners in industry and through my own entrepreneurial efforts. Uh, as a matter of fact, right at the moment, I'm on entrepreneurial leave from uh, the university. Um, I'm actually sitting down in, in the city at a startup that I co-founded. Um, so I didn't actually always understand very well this sort of uh, very um, synergistic connection between industry and academia uh, when I was a, a young uh, professor. It indeed, was not so much the culture, and uh, and it felt a little bit almost like sullying, you know, academia in some way to be too closely involved with industry. Um, uh, but for me, the um, that the kind of breakthrough, the change in perspective happened. Um, in the mid-90s, um, so a little story, General Motors had for many years um, given a gift to Northwestern University that could be used in various ways. Um, and they came to us in the mid-90s and said, look, we want to give you the money, but not just as not not gift. We really want to understand how you're going to use it, and we want to know that it's going to be relevant to the sort of things that we care about. And that led to um, a group of us faculty uh, visiting uh, GM facilities. It was really kind of my first time spending a lot of time in site manufacturing facilities, industrial R&D, and they visited us as well. And through the course of it, we spent time talking about really fundamental things that need to be done and came up with the notion that, um, remember earlier I was talking about how robots weren't so great at interacting with the world. Um, this was a pretty big problem in automobile assembly because uh, when you're putting parts in the cars, that's interacting with the world. And so if you look at how cars were being built in the late 80s, well, the robots were uh, welding up the frames, robots were painting them, but robots were not putting them together. People were. On the other hand, people were getting hurt. Uh, if your job is to work on an assembly line and you're hefting apart and getting your body in an awkward posture to put into a car, after a number of cycles, you can get you know, back injury, shoulder injury. And so the challenge was, can we bring together the best of both? Um, and, and that was a really fundamental and really exciting challenge. And so it led for me doing research closely with industry for the first time in my career, which ended up being really some, I think, of the most important research I had, had been able to do. It also led to some, some really interesting inventions and to my first startup company, um, which then led to further interaction with industry. So uh, that totally changed my perspective. It made me realize that, that you know, we're, we're all part of one larger system um, and that, that important and challenging ideas uh, are out there in the world and, and by, by interacting closely with industry, not only can we, can we help them, but we can, we can better direct in really interesting directions our own more basic research. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned there, um, you know, some of your own commercialization, uh, commercialization efforts, you know, with industry. Uh, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I know you're a holder of dozens of patents and you started multiple companies. So um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about those efforts and then bringing it back to, you know, how commercialization and that emphasis that's placed on university research um, is kind of changing the field, um, you know, at large. Sure. 
Um, yeah, so that story I just told actually did result in a number of patents. The invention of of uh, something that we call the cobot, the collaborative robot. So this is a robot that would work directly with the person and help that person from becoming injured, but maybe also make that person more productive. Um, and we started a company that came to be known as Cobotics. Um, I actually took some time off from the university to, to run that company um, while looking for more permanent management. And, um, and, and in the process, um, <laughs> learned many things. Um, uh, Learned that I'm not a great manager. Learned that uh, uh, that there there's a big gulf that exists between the the type of problems that we're capable and interested in taking on in the laboratory and the sort of solutions that ultimately need to be deployed in the in the commercial world. Um, and and that what we need as a society is some mechanisms to, to bridge that, that gulf. Um, you know, in today's world, and in the U.S. at least, um, those mechanisms are partially um, uh, federal funding, um, you know, uh, um, things like the SBIR program, Small Business Innovation Research Program, and partially things like venture capital. Um, uh, but uh, it, it, it's it's a it's a system which has come a long way, and frankly, I think still needs a long way to go. It still has a long way to go because there's typically a lot of work that's that's required to bring technology that that full distance. Um, so uh, you know, I think that uh, nibbling away at it from both ends is, is part of a responsibility that we in, in society you know share. Um, we absolutely have to have the very basic research, and by the way, that's how people get educated to be able to go into into you know corporations and, and be fully effective. But we also um, you know we also need um, uh, the commercial world to. To, to look to academia to, um, to to help address some of these more more basic and long term challenges has happened with us and, and uh, the automotive industry back back in the in the late nineties. Um, so those are a few thoughts. I'm not sure. I'm- no, no, that's really helpful. And you're kind of leading into what I wanted to close with, which was, you know, you you described I think kind of the universe of university research pretty well there. Um, I don't know how much you know you've thought about where the state is as a whole. Um, obviously, as a state-based organization, we're we're always sort of um, interested in and in promoting Illinois and and making sure that you know as a state we're sort of you know on the the leading edge of innovation. So I don't know. Maybe if you can just talk a little bit about you know where you think the state is in terms of university research, and then um, you know whether it's in your own area or sort of more broadly. And then, you know, maybe some some things that could be done to, to move us forward as a state or, you know, even as a country and, and kind of some some areas yeah. that, that could help in that respect. Yes. Yeah, so, so first of all, I think we're yeah, we're privileged to live in a state that's got some some extraordinary you know, resources in, in terms of. Um, terms of research capability, uh, both in the, the, the universities, a number of leading universities, I'm fortunate to work at one, um, uh, and in um, things like I mentioned earlier, Argonne National Lab uh, research organizations. So we certainly have the capacity to, to generate new new ideas. Uh, um, we also have a very, very strong uh, set of industries in, in the state. Um, 
that said, um, there are always opportunities to, to sort of expand and strengthen the ecosystem. Um, and I, I use that word ecosystem very intentionally. Um, uh, my, my life as an entrepreneur has taught me that um, you need a lot of factors to come together to, to be competitive, to be successful. Um, you need, for instance, source of talent, right? You have to have um, uh, very highly educated, very, very capable people who want to be where you are, who are where you are. Um, you have to have, of course, you know, financial resources, those who are um, prepared to invest in that, which is new. Um, uh, you need to have um, just infrastructure, um, uh, you know, which I think here in the city of Chicago, we have extraordinary infrastructure, but, you know, just getting, you know, uh, transportation, you know, or airports and things of this nature, and they're so important. Um, and, um, so, so those are a, a few, a few things. Um, I, I don't think that we can think of it strictly in a regional sense um, uh, in, in today's world it's far too big and far too interconnected a world I, you know in my little startup uh, you know we're we, we necessarily you know do business around the country and around the world um, um, but of course you want your region to be able to sort of nucleate and, and support um, uh, you know efforts that are able to sort of engage with the rest of the world and I do think that the state, um, you know, very much has has a, a role in providing that. Um, uh, I would say primarily in terms of ensuring that we have the type of environment and infrastructure that attracts people. Um, people are probably the most important key at all of this. Um, um, so those are a few thoughts. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it at that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so maybe one final thing, you know, just looking back at, at your 30 years at Northwestern and, and the research that you've done, what are some of the things that, that sort of jump out to you as being highlights, you know, discoveries that you've made or, or companies you started, um, patents you've been awarded, you know, whatever it is that kind of jumps out? Uh, well, yeah, I, it's been a fun career and I've, I've had a chance to do a lot of interesting things. Um, I'd say what I'm working on now is I've never had more fun. Um, uh, this um, this technology is what we call surface haptics. So we're uh, controlling what you feel when you're using a touchscreen or a trackpad. Um, so just you use a touchscreen like you might ordinarily use one, but as you move your finger across it, you feel things like textures and edges and shapes, and it's kind of fun. It's a lot of fun, actually. Um, it's also... Um, I think a good example of sort of the need for this ecosystem, like our, our little company to make this work, we have to have absolutely, you know, state-of-the-art uh, technology and material science and electrical engineering and software and mechanical engineering. We need to, uh, you know, understand how to um, do business uh, with uh, a wide variety of customers across the globe. Um, we have to, uh, you know, find capital to do all of this sort of thing. Uh, and so it's a very multidimensional, uh, very kind of exciting uh, endeavor. Um, and, uh, and it's led to a lot of creativity. We have uh, approaching 50 patents in various stages of prosecution, about 20 of them issued. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, I have to say that um, a lot of the, the 
concepts, a lot of the ideas came out of our laboratory at Northwestern and been licensed to the company. Um, and along the way, um, there have just been some uh, extraordinarily uh, talented students at Northwestern who have you know, come up with uh, these, these sort of brilliant ideas. Um, and and uh, several of those students now work here at, at this company. And that's the sort of thing that I get excited by is when you, when you see this kind of virtuous cycle, right, where you've got a, a really great institution training people who then can go and be part of the commercial world and create new value for society, which is what I hope that we're doing. So this is very fun times for me. Yeah, that's great. And I remember, you know, sort of learning about you and your research and, and seeing, um, you know, your work on haptic displays and just thinking, you know, that's incredibly cool. And I, I'd imagine at some point that'll be on our, uh, you know, our tablets or our phones in some capacity. And I know that that's um, work that you're that you're working on now. Um, so with that, um, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um you know, it's been great talking to you and learning a little bit more about your journey and, and your research interests. So, um, yep, Professor Golgate, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate the invitation. It's been nice talking. Again, our thanks to Professor Colgate for coming on the podcast. Uh, Professor Colgate was one of our researchers to know, uh, a list of researchers around the state that we released last month. Uh, the full list of those researchers can be found on our website, isdcoalition.org slash data. Um, coming up on the next podcast, we sit down with Professor Brandon Cox, a researcher at Southern Illinois University, uh, to talk about some of her uh, research in hearing and sort of hearing loss and restoration. Um, so until then, thanks for listening to the podcast.